Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I'm bringing you Dr. Uri Lotan, who is a CMIO. He is the CMIO right now at UHS but going to be taking a new position as a VP CHIO at Multicare. So, Ori, welcome to the show. Hey, pleasure to uh, be on. I'm a longtime fan. I appreciate that. That's awesome. I really wanted to pick your brain here. You wrote a great blog post. We're going to get into that. But if you would, tell us a little about you and your journey to being a CMIO and then maybe I'll even do a follow-up question about the CHIO, but start with CMIO. Sure, I'd be glad to. So I'm an internist by training, did medical school and residency in San Antonio, Texas, and finished that up in 1999. And I started out as a primary care physician, and I, I practiced for a few years in the Houston area. And then I decided to become a hospitalist, and I eventually got recruited up to uh, North Texas to start my own program. And the hospital I got recruited up to happened to be a showcase site for uh, McKesson Paragon. And so the CIO pulled me into the site visits to demo how physicians use the system. And then one day he introduced me as, quote, the closest thing we have to a CMIO. And I had never heard the term, so I, I went back to the office, I Googled it. And that's when I realized that it was what I really loved to do. So I negotiated something like a 0.1 FTE position with our CEO as, quote, CMIO time. And that actually came in handy because our hospital was acquired by a large system called UHS in 2007. And then when UHS decided to do an EMR replacement a couple years later, I was the only facility CMIO in the company to draw from. So UHS, it's based in King of Prussia, which is known for a a big mall. Uh, It's a suburb of Philadelphia. And and I came up for a vendor selection in the summer of 2009 and there were dozens and dozens of people, but I was really the only physician involved. And I remember talking to our system CIO, and I told him that UHS had something like $145 million at risk for meaningful use, and the vast majority of that risk would be with the physicians, and maybe they could use some help there because the way UHS is organized, the acute care division has 26 hospitals, and there are several thousand active medical staff, but at the time we only employed maybe 200. So the rest of the docs were independent splitters, and they could always take their business elsewhere if they had too much friction with the EMR. I think they took that to heart, and they created a CMIO role for me at the enterprise level, and then I moved up here January 2010, and then I've been up here for the last 10 plus years, And we're a Cerner shop, so we've been spending a lot of time implementing. We started off with Cerner inpatients, then we went into ambulatory for our employed doctors, and now we've gotten into revenue cycle and some population health. And our team, a team of teams, but we really grew our clinical informatics team. So we're actually four full-time board-certified clinical informatics physicians. We have 10-plus nurse informaticists, and we have pharmacy informaticists, all centralized at corporate. And really have managed to achieve a good operation and really are able to support the field. That's my rambling long story. I hope I didn't go I too it. long. No, it's perfect. It's a, it's, it, you fell into it, so to speak. Yes. And you took advantage of an opportunity and kind of wiggled your way in, which is how most of us have gotten into these roles. So it's a, 
But it's an important story, I think, for other up-and-coming CMIOs to hear about is sometimes you got to elbow your way in. you got to make the case and say, hey, there's dollars at risk and this is why you want me. So uh, that was good. Now, tell me a little bit about this CHIO role. How is it different? And yes, there's we throw around in the industry CMIO versus CHIO. How is this really different? That's a great question, I think. I think the CMIO, at least th this is just my perspective, I've been a CMIO 10, 12 years. I think the word medical, it was almost like the expectation is you're going to be a liaison between the, the technology and information services and the providers, the physicians. And you're going to be in there kind of like a, a chief medical officer is to operations. To me, the chief health information officer is a bit of an expansion where now you're focusing more on a health of a population and you're crossing venues so it's not as focused on acute you're also an ambulatory and maybe an ASCs and pharmacy maybe there's a health plan uh, the other components so to me it's more of those components that if you're in a successful accountable care organization and you're taking uh, risk for total cost and quality of care for a designated population, it's, it requires a wider umbrella. And, and, and to me, the CHIO is, is the person who's going to be helping manage that and trying to wrangle the data that's required as the patient moves across this whole continuum. I'd be interested to hear your, your perspective, but that's just where my head is at around it. Sometimes we see that with the need to manage that population that you're talking about, they put analytics under the CHIO as opposed to sometimes they don't in the CMIO role. Is that the case for you? Will that be something you'll have or is that something you're working towards? It's interesting. Actually, in our organization, we have another CMIO who has at UHS who has analytics as part of their portfolio and actually has developers uh, and reporting folks reporting up to him. And this is just me speaking. I, I, I work well in a matrix environment, so it doesn't really matter to me if there's a solid line or a matrix line. As long as people, you've got good people working towards common goals and you have common outcomes, I, I think however you decide to configure it, clearly the, the, the analytics is really going to follow the, a CMIO or a CHIO. Because particularly when you're trying to influence, I think, physician behavior, Physicians are very data-driven. If they don't like the data, they're going to question the data. So you really have to start off with a very robust, clean data set. And then if you're able to share that, if you're able to agree on targets, if you're able to share peer-related data, I think that's going to take you a long way towards where you want to go. And it's more of an objective conversation versus a finger-pointing exercise if, if you're not meeting the goals that you've agreed to. I could go into this all day, but I wanted to, <laughs> it's a great topic. I wanted to get to the blog post. First of all, Ori, I have to expose your alter ego for this next part of the podcast here. I really want to talk about this blog post you wrote under your name here, The Nostalgic Doctor. You'll have to explain your website a little bit. And then I do want to talk about, this was a great blog post that I just saw it on LinkedIn. It was about training doctors in the EMR. Tell me a little bit about your blog and why you wrote this particular piece. Yeah, thank you for the for the plug. So I do have a nostalgicdoctor.com, which is my alter ego. And I've been writing just little short stories and some artwork. I started it a few months ago, really. I had just a little bit more time that I saved from not having to commute back and forth as, as we were working virtually. 
And I thought, everything is so negative. Wouldn't it be nice to just try to do something positive, uh, maybe spark just a little bit of joy? Uh, and I enjoy doing it like you enjoy doing the podcast. So I, I just I, I think about topics that really are the, the sweet spot of clinical informatics. And, and then I just write little one or two minute uh, stories that, that you can read. And I'm, I'm happy you enjoyed it. So I did write a post called Coaching the Trainer. And it really had to do with our first foray into training back in 2011 when we went down to our Florida hospital and had the ER docs rightfully kick our ass for wasting half their day with our abysmal classroom training. They sat through the whole thing and it was all features and functionality. And at the end of it, they, they absolutely had no idea how to do their job in the EMR. And that's when we realized that we had completely screwed this up and we had to go back and get this right before trying to train thousands of doctors at, at all these hospitals. So that was a positive experience for us. So that I, I was just re recounting that a little bit. But the good news is it, we eventually figured it out. We can talk a little bit about that, but it was humbling to, to say the least. How many years ago was that? Just, just to put it in perspective. Uh, it was almost 10 years ago. It's almost 10. But we're still teaching functionality in these EMR classes. I had a doctor on, he went live, I think last year at Scripps with his EMR, and he was like 20 hours of classroom training. He was furious. And it was all about, okay, you want your schedule to look blue or look green? And he's like, I don't care. <laughs> Just give me, how do I get through a visit? So do you see that it's changing? What did you do to make it better? I think, and again, I'm going to paint with a wide brush, and things are getting better. But if you think about the vendors, they typically deliver you training. And they are, for the most part, engineering companies. And a lot of them do hire clinicians, but for whatever reason, they don't deliver you training that has workflow in mind. So they do what they do best, the features, the functionality, the technical aspects. And candidly, those really need to take a backseat to teaching the workflow. So what we found and continue to find, which is a little bit disappointing, is that we virtually are un unable to install any out-of-the-shelf training. We always have to go and really have our informaticist and our training team pour over it and reconfigure it and package it up in a way that, that is palatable to the folks that we want to train. And we have a lot of constraints. 95% of our medical staff is independent. When they're in a classroom not being compensated, it's sucking away from their opportunity to generate revenue for their businesses. So you have to be extremely mindful and sensitive when you're constructing a training approach. And we can talk a little bit about that. But no, I don't think, I think that for the most part, this is not done well. And we certainly didn't do it well for a long time. Epic and Cerner make great pieces of software, although some would argue with that. They absolutely know nothing about training still after all this time. They, uh, and the problem is our trainers went out, we're an Epic shop, so our trainers went out to Epic and they learned how to train from Epic and they bring this back and our doctors were trained. They had a horrible experience with their go live three, four years ago. We're getting ready to, we're taking a Cerner hospital that's going to convert to Epic and we've got the same training curriculum of four years ago. Why would we expect a different result here? So I'm looking at redesigning this curriculum. So I'm getting a free consult from you today. <laughs> Why? What should I do? What should it look like? I think it's helpful maybe to, to step back and have a few guiding principles. The first is 
to the extent that you can, try to design and configure your system to be as intuitive as possible. And that will minimize the amount of training that you need to do to begin with. The second is, we always build web-based training that doctors can do or providers can do or actually any clinician can do at their convenience. And we try to do both a basic training that they can do, that's maybe 30 minutes, and then more advanced modules. Some people will do them right on the front end. Some people want to use a system for a few weeks and then go and, and learn the more advanced option. So we create that, we, we, we publish it out there long before training, months before. Now when you talk about classroom training, there's a sweet spot, maybe two to three weeks before conversion. If you do it too much before, they'll forget about it. If you do it too much closer to that, it gets a little bit rushed. And then you need to be really mindful when you bring people into a class, first of all, have it be an opportunity to, do, to be more like a flight simulator. Get them in the system, have test patients, have them do key processes in the system, and then have somebody right there at their elbow to help them. And they, they get a lot more value from the classes, and we encourage them to do web-based training before they come in. And then when we offer the classes, we really try to be very customer-centric. So we'll offer them after hours, we'll offer them nights, weekends, holidays, wh whenever we can to get folks to come into the class. And we try to get all the, the training team to get all of the logistics lined up. So who all needs to be trained? Have they done their web-based training? We can track that electronically. Have they signed up for a class? Did they come into the class, etc.? So all of that is part and parcel of what we call end user training. And our training team really does, does a heavy lift getting all this done, but it's really important. T to your point, if you don't train people properly on the front end, you're going to have a lot more resources at conversion, and you could potentially have uh, a service recovery situation because people are going to be unhappy. How many hours are they spending perhaps online first, or the, I assume this is a video they're watching, a streaming video of some kind, versus in the classroom. What does the hours look like? Yeah, so I think it depends a little bit on what application you're teaching them, but for the most part, we'll have a 30-minute basic web-based training for a particular application or a module, and then we'll maybe have another three or four 30 to 45-minute advanced training, web-based training on that topic. And then when we bring them into a classroom, which we try to only do when it's something like computerized physician order entry or physician documentation, for providers, we shoot for under four hours. So you can schedule it in a half day. That's going to blow some people's minds right there. Physician training in under four hours for a physician that has not used that system is not what the EMR vendors are talking about. <laughs> well, they came to us and said, we need two full days in the classroom. And we looked at them like they have three heads. We said, do you guys understand? At the time, we employed 200 doctors. Today, we employ 550. But that still leaves several thousand that are essentially small businesses. I can't go to you and say, hey, close down your small business for two days. Come sit in a classroom unreimbursed and we'll teach you every feature functionality under the sun. This was a non-starter, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. And that makes so, so much sense to do, hey, get as much as you can. They can watch it at night in their own home, watch mm -hmm. the, the workflow, 
And do you give them access to a training environment so they can see it done once uh, on this video platform that they're doing and then they could go and try it themselves? Or how does that work? Yeah, great question. So the first is the web-based training is not only video, it's interactive. So they'll watch something and then we'll say, okay, click here. So the system, and, and if they can't figure it out, the system will, will walk them through it. So it is bi-directional to some extent. And then, yes, we have, we didn't initially, but over time we did develop a sandbox train domain and we do give them access to the train domain and they can go in there and play. We built a bunch of patients with realistic patient data and folks have an opportunity to, to do that. And that's another valuable experience if you can get folks to do that. As much as you can, it gives them, it gives folks comfort before they go live. But none of these, unfortunately, none of these were out of the box tools, we had to spend a lot of time and resources and continue to, to prop up these train domains. Um, Talk about that a little more because, okay, a new version comes out, you got to redo all your videos. How does that work? Yeah. So that's a great question. You seem to have a lot of them. We build our web-based training in a modular sense. So let's say it's a 30 minute web-based training on uh, power chart. You might have a two-minute two minute snippet on message center and a two-minute snippet on viewing labs and a two-minute snipping, da-da-da. So what we try to do is, as new things come in, you can add a module, or as things get upgraded, you can upgrade just that little snippet, that little module, and that, and that way you don't have to redo the entire thing. So keeping them modular and, and focused helps us in terms of that. And then we have a pretty complicated strategy. So. We, we have three hubs, East, Central, and West. Each hub has about eight to 10 hospitals on it, uh, corresponding with the time zones. And then in each hub, we try to keep them standardized across the board. And then within each hub, we have a prod domain, a mock domain, uh, a cert domain, and then we have a train domain. And, and so clearly there's a several hundred percent build across the board to, and it's logistically challenging to try to keep everything maintained and synchronized across the board. But it's an investment that we make because it's something that we, we deem important. I like to give the CMIOs who listen in here really tactical advice. So I want to talk a little bit about the, it may be in the classroom you were talking about, but they're working on probably their macros or their smart phrases or whatever the, the vendor's term is for the personalization tools that they're going to use. Is that being done in production or is it, oh, we wait till the day it go live and then we tell them to go build their phrases of whatever they want to <coughs> plop in the chart? Yeah. So what we do is we develop a library of those quote unquote corporate ones that the physicians and the nurses, we develop and we usually will have, we'll use like the, the at symbol in front of them. And then, uh, and we, we train them where to go to find them and we build a pretty robust library and then they can just copy and paste those and then just personalize it to get that last 20% that they like. But then we also train them how to de novo create their own. And typically we'll do this. What we've done is we'll either do it during training. We'll also do, before we, would, we, we do our conversions, the week before, we do what we would call open houses. So we would take over a room um, in the hospital and we would staff it maybe 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., something really painful. And doctors, could, anybody could come in at any time when they had mi uh, a minute. And if we had half an hour with them, we would, we would go over their templates, their auto text. We were doing a cloud-based dragon. So we would show them how to use dragon, make sure that they can log in, how to create their macros and so on and that. So it was at the moment. 
so we would supplement our immediate pre-conversion activities with with that as well and i think it's worth pointing out that unfortunately all of these endeavors while extremely helpful to the customers to the physicians they're just very resource intensive you just can't you just can't short training or conversion because you typically only have one or two bites at the apple with doctors and if you screw up in either of those you could potentially really see your implementation go sideways yeah i understand that so who's doing the training uh, the vendors talk about specialist training specialists but doctors are expensive to pull off the line are you using trainers who are more education-based or are you using providers? So once in a blue moon, we will be super lucky and we'll get a physician champion who understands the workflow, who we not only learn how to design and configure the system, but helps us with our training and actually trains their group. That's the gold standard. That's few and far between. Typically for, for us, Tra the way we manage training is, is it's a centralized function. We have a, a corp training d team that works very closely with us. And then essentially they'll go out and we have three waves of training. So wave number one is our corporate trainers will go out to the facility and do what we call train the trainers. So they will train the people who long-term will be responsible for training new people in the system. And those will typically be people from the local education department. Sometimes they're in like an IS education person and then we have another wave of training which is where we where typically our corporate trainers will train the super users that will support the conversion so these will typically be nursing personnel who are going to get pulled out during conversion they won't be doing clinical work they'll be a super user at the elbow and so we train them on on all the applications so they can help the docs and then we have we have end user training and that typically is conducted also by our corporate trainers where they'll travel, they'll live down there for two or three weeks before conversion and basically just do classes all day long. And they'll be the ones that train uh, the doctors. Again, usually in small groups, maybe no more than 12, maybe 15 providers in one room for one or two trainers will keep classes to maybe four hours or less. Again, they'll be in the computer having already done web-based training, running through simulations, and then they can also come in to these open houses for some supplemental training or configuration ahead of time. Again, since we had to do this for many applications, for many hospitals, we, it took years, but we finally kind of got the cadence of it. This training, you mentioned scenarios. I think that's so valuable. I picture an ED team getting together and running through a code and using whatever code tools or a trauma and understanding what trauma tools they're gonna to be using for documentation or the ICU team. How are you pulling those scenarios together, setting them up, getting the time for the providers to do that? Or is that really not possible in a realistic fashion to get these people to train <laughs> together like that? Yeah, I wish we could do that. That would be awesome. Where we're at today, for example, is let's say it's a naive user. It would be how to log in, how to set up your list, how to manage your medical records, how to view different elements of the chart, how to put in your orders how to respond to quality alerts and advisors, how to do your documentation, how your voice recognition tool goes in there, how to do your med rec. Again, I, I'm talking about workflow related processes and we try to do them in sequence. This would be what you do early in the day, maybe towards the end of the day is how would you hand off your patients? How would you sign off, et cetera? And then, 
And again, there are feature functionality and technical aspects to do these particular workflow-driven scenarios, but never do they, never, workflow is, is uh, it, the workflow is the primacy, right? One of the things I've tried to do is not teach every bit of functionality in the EMR to someone, Pick, teach them the best way. Hey, our organization has found that to get through this workflow, this is the way we recommend you do it. They may learn over time different ways of doing it, but we try to teach the best way that we think is the best way. That may not work for everyone. So what do you think? Let people explore and figure out what's best for them or give them Here's the, here, here's the menu, take what's from the menu here. We want you to go down the menu. Yeah, we're a big believer in, in busy, harried, burned out providers are gonna take the path of least resistance. The easiest, most intuitive way to get, to, to, to get your job done. And you can always, in the future, find your own way or look for other avenues, et cetera. And to your point, it's like Microsoft Word. You don't have to learn a thousand of the available functionality to go in there and type up a Word document. And in fact, the vast majority of us, I think, don't use 90% of the capabilities, even though we've been using Microsoft Word forever. There are a few of us that do, but the vast majority of us don't need to use every bell and whistle. Our perspective is it needs to be the most frictionless experience possible. And that's always our, our mindset. I'm thinking this doesn't apply just to physician training, though. Respiratory therapy, the nurses, the medical assistants in the clinic. Doesn't that apply across the board here? Yeah, it, it really does. And one of the reasons is that the company I work for right now is a for-profit company. We're obsessed with productivity. And, and so when you take a nurse out now, the nurses train for a lot longer, maybe a couple of days. So that's that's really, you have to be very mindful when you take nurses out of clinical uh, practice. First of all, how are you going to backfill it? Second of all, how much time can you take them out of clinical care to train them? So we're very mindful of that. We've got a great nursing team. But to me, the same tenets apply whether you're training a physician or a pharmacist or a nurse or a respiratory therapy. We're all licensed clinicians. We, we want to be very um, sensitive to these folks' time. And we all there uh, probably there's more similarities related to how we do our jobs than there are disparities wouldn't you say i would think so that adults learn the same way i don't think a a doctor learns significantly different than a nurse hands-on build the muscle memory during training so that when you're in front of your first patient it's not a dress rehearsal for that patient. That's real. That's for that yeah. patient. They want the best experience. They don't want the learning experience. Yeah. Give me the, give me the train doctor, please. Thank you. Yeah, so, and I've heard scientifically that an adult learner often needs to, to see or hear things four different times before they'll really absorb it. And that's why we have web-based training and then we try to review it with simulations and then we give them handouts and trifolds and have people at the elbow a lot of repetition because these systems are moderate to severely complex and you're dealing with folks that their primary task is to care for patients not to learn an emr they have to be really mindful and sensitive to that how did you know that it was working when you switched to a different model yeah you tend to know when things are not working because usually physicians aren't shy and they'll let you know. And if they don't, then the CEO or the CEO is going to call you up and berate you for upending the tranquility of his or her facility. Like when we went the first time around, we had some doctors submitting us four 
four typed pages of, of venom, uh, so we knew we were getting it wrong. You know when you're getting it right, I think when, depending on what you're in, what application you're installing, whether you're meeting your metrics. So, for example, when we did uh, CPOE and physician documentation, we're tracking adoption. We see, oh, we have 85% voluntary adoption. We see our transcription expenses redu being reduced by a few million dollars a year as they're moving into the EMR. We're looking at time in the EMR. We're seeing that's improved. We happen to have a physician satisfaction survey, and satisfaction with the EMR was the highest by one to two quartiles of everything else. So these are some of the things that, depending on the reporting capabilities of your EMR, if you're tracking utilization, adoption, time in EMR, satisfaction, you might have some ROI metrics related to expense reduction for transcription for other things. You can use those maybe as surrogates for whether uh, your training and conversion have, have hit the mark. Ori, this has been an awesome conversation. It's one of my areas of passion. I love talking about how to train the docs well, and your article just resonated, mostly because I'm knee-deep in it now with this go-live that we'll be doing in July. And I want to thank you, because this is what other docs need to hear, either to bring to their system or CMIOs to start developing and changing the training curriculum. We have to do this differently or docs will hate us, <laughs> and I don't want the pitchforks outside my office, which is, I think, what you were describing, is there's less pitchforks outside your office, so that's a sign of success. Yeah, uh, and maybe, uh, if we have time, maybe I'll leave you with, with two final thoughts, one obvious, one less obvious. I think it's important that local leadership, maybe the CEO, the CMO, the COO, set the expectation with the, with the medical staff and certainly the medical executive committee as well, that training is, is important for patient care and safety, particularly when you're talking about things like order entry, documentation, barcode of med administration, et cetera. And, and so physicians are expected to participate, to do their web-based training, to come into the classroom. And if folks aren't participating, or if they're quote unquote late adopters, that somebody one of the local leaders is going to go and, and talk with them and explain those expectations. I think that's important on the front end because you may you will encounter some resistance. Oh, I don't want to train. We have physicians that split in our marketplace and they may be at another Cerner hospital and say, so I already had Cerner training, but we're configured completely different. You're going to have to go through our training as well because we've also done a lot of custom development that you're not going to be familiar with there. Getting that done on the front end is important. I think that's probably something that, that folks would expect. One thing that I want to bring up that was always a surprise is uh, even though the drumbeat of conversion and implementation may be sounding for two or three months, there's always one doctor who's, I don't know, been in a cave and they're going to pop up on you the morning of and say, hey, I need to get trained. And so we started bringing a trainer to conversion and doing on-demand training because in our system, we wouldn't flip you over and give you security to do CPOE or some other things until you've been trained. That's just a patient safety matter. And so we always have that. It's, we've done 26 conversions for documentation. There's always been a few doctors that had to be trained on site during conversion. So be prepared for that. Have a trainer there. Otherwise, you're going to get caught flat-footed. That's great and practical advice. I love that. One last question. How about the trainers? Did they buy into this change in how training happens? We're really fortunate because our trainers are centralized. They sit right next to us over in Corp IS, and they really view 
the informatics, the informaticists as a great resource for them. And, and they sit with us for what must be hundreds of hours as we create the curriculum, sit through the curriculum, because we want to be the guinea pigs, not the docs, work with us on the web-based training, et cetera. We're fortunate, I think, in that we really didn't have centralized training ahead of time. So we were able to put together a group that worked synergistically with us. They're a great asset. And like I said, they do almost, they do most of the heavy lifting, w w which really comes to bear right before conversion. So we've been really fortunate there. Or thank you for coming on the show. This has been really enlightening. I love good tactical shows where it's practical advice we can get in front of people. If people wanted to reach out and get more information from you, what's the best way to find you? I think connecting with me on LinkedIn would be lovely. They can, I'll put a plug in again for them to check out The Nostalgic Doctor, maybe read some of the stories, maybe some will resonate with them. I've got a little email address there. I think that's how you got a hold of me. That's right. And again, I really enjoyed the last 30 minutes together. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.